Howdy, welcome back to Dismantling Injustice. This week we're interrupting our regularly scheduled programming to bring you a review and discussion of Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. You know, more than anything, this podcast and our work at Envision Freedom is about imagining the world that we want. And in many ways, this movie is an allegory for the struggles, for the war that we'll have to fight to ultimately build this world. So last week, our staff went to check out the movie and we decided to share our thoughts with listeners. Unfortunately, I was dealing with an emergency and unable to make it, but the team held it down. So when we're back, it's the Envision Freedom team on Wakanda Forever. to the Dismantling Injustice podcast. We have a very exciting and special episode for you all today. Uh, sadly, we do not have our fearless leader, Carl, with us, um, but we do have some great Envision Freedom folks. Who wants to kick us off? I'll start. Hi, everyone. My name is Angel. I use she, her pronouns, and I am the program coordinator for the Court Watch NYC program. Hello everyone, my name is Ayana. I use she, her pronouns, and I am currently an intern at Envision Freedom Fund, and I am a graduate student, social work graduate student right now. Hi everyone, my name is Ariela. I use she, her pronouns. I am the bond and hotline specialist. I'm Julie Menti, I'm the communications manager, and I also use she, her pronouns. Hi, my name is Abby, I use she, her pronouns. I'm the communications coordinator here and the producer of this fine podcast. Can we talk about the women? Yeah. Yeah, like the role of women. But in terms of black women, I, I feel like, uh, also for everyone at home, I'm a black woman. But it was a, it was a really wonderful portrayal of the complexities of being a black woman. So I think it was an opportunity to show through um, the queen and through Shuri and through all of the warriors, like the strength and resilience and power of black women. But I think that label is often all we're afforded. And so I think it was also an exploration of black women deserving vulnerability um, and needing it was what was the most powerful for me to see is just almost all of these women who in the last film really didn't shed tears and they were known for their stoicism and their like witty humor and we saw a lot of them like be vulnerable in this film and so I think that that was what resonated with me the most just seeing that. On the telecon side uh, I would have loved to see more um, more leadership or like more of a role, more speaking actually for um, women in the telecon side of, of society. One thing I really, really loved about this movie was the fact that there were not any like love story or arcs with the women. Like it's always like my biggest movie pet peeve is that like every single female character always has to be someone's love interest especially with Disney and especially in Marvel. Mm -hmm. um, and so I loved that there was like no, like Sherry got to have her arc with no like 
man that she was falling in love with. But I love that like the women were allowed to just be people and that it seemingly they were on equal footing with like the men. I felt like that, especially in Wakanda where like the strongest warriors are women, like after T'Challa passes, like his whole family is just women at that point. And I also thought with the Talokan, with Nomura's character, like even besides Nomura, like in all of the fight scenes, it's not just men that are fighting. Like mm. the women are fighting right beside them and they seem to be on equal footing. And I feel like that really spoke to like indigenous and especially like African cultures pre-colonialism where women really, really had like a much larger role in society and in a lot of uh, cultures or in a lot of empires, like women were leading, women were like on complete equal footing. And it was really like this idea of Western intervention, colonialism and slavery that like forced women to kind of take a step down and be below men in a lot of our cultures. I don't know if you guys noticed that like one second or maybe three second scene where um, there is I think two warriors who um, I think one of them gives the other warrior a kiss and it's like, thank you, my love or something mm -hmm. like that, my love. Um, which I took as a queer um, woman relationship. Um, and it, it, it literally was for three seconds, so maybe a lot of people missed it, but I like how, um, I think I was on Twitter and TikTok, <laughs> where people were like hyping that scene up so much because there wasn't, there isn't that re representation, especially in Marvel. One thing that I was thinking about was I loved in this movie how like, it felt to me like the whole of the diaspora of the African diaspora was represented. Like they were in like Mali, they were in Cape Verde, they were in Haiti, they were like, you know, they went to Boston. And I loved that, especially like Riri, who is this like 19 year old, like genius scientist, like from Chicago, just ends up in Wakanda. And you have like Nakia in Haiti, which is has such a rich black history, like the first black republic, the first successful slave rebellion and they even allude to that when Sherry says like that's a powerful name with a powerful history I loved that they had like that representation and like the history of the diaspora in general was like woven in um because yeah like black people are all over the world mm -hmm. and and even to the point of colonization like it's happened everywhere and even that the final battle like happened in the middle of the ocean you know <laughs> in the Atlantic like, in the Atlantic that. Ocean it's like Okay, like, you know, <laughs> that was a choice. It happened in a space where it's like, I mean, the last line of Killmonger in the in Black Panther 1 was, bury me in the ocean with my ancestors who would rather die than be in bondage or chains. I'm paraphrasing, but the fact that this last battle happened in the Atlantic Ocean, the home of the Talakan and, and where all of these people that Wakanda was able to isolate themselves from were, were taken from their homes to various spaces. I think that that was also powerful, a powerful choice as well. And I hate movies that take place like in the middle of the ocean, like fights <laughs> like that, like I hate like battleship, those things. I'm like, this is just boring, but I was interested. <laughs> I was interested in this battle. <laughs> I feel like something that really stuck with me was like the theme of grief and how mm -hmm. like the movie was really about grief, but I think it really stuck out to me, not only because I feel like there is so much grief in my life, but in general, like especially like since 2020, 
there's been like nonstop grief. And I feel like so often in like social movements, generally there's this like, you know, people get burnt out and there becomes this like easy way out where it's like, it's too sad, like I can't do it. And I love that the movie showed um, specifically, like honestly, all of the characters like moving through grief and how like the different stages, like I thought there was such great character development and like the overall message of like needing to learn how to work through grief, needing to learn how to push through grief, how to like hold your community through grief, all of that felt very relevant, like not only to our society in general, but especially to our movement. And like, how do you like continue to support your community or lead your community while grieving? I felt like was a very like big theme that I got out of it too. Yeah. Yeah, this is making me think how the systems that we work in, immigration, criminal, legal, create, like like you were saying, Angel, create so much grief. That's It's just a byproduct that is so tangible and so alive. Um, and I was just thinking about how before we watched the movie earlier that day, we went and watched an immigration bond hearing where this family was going to learn whether or not their family member was going to be bonded out of immigration detention, return to them, return to their family and their community or remain in detention for longer. Um, and it was a really tense atmosphere um, and the emotions were so heavy and palpable and happily he is going to return to his family but so many times that's not the outcome one of the things that sometimes people think are are surprised by in our work is that as as heavy as it is as serious as it is as full of grief as it can be there's also a lot of joy um, in our relationships with each other in our relationships with our community um, in in building something in in being united in in a goal to you know end end these grief causing systems definitely and I feel like that like really forming community is what keeps a lot of us like alive in this movement, like being able to lean on other people or like take a step back and know that somebody is gonna have your back. And even just how much like our movements intersect with each other and the way that we're able to celebrate other people's wins and celebrate, and they're able to celebrate our wins. And that was really making me think about the interconnectedness of oppression, um, especially between like freedom and liberation. Like they don't always look the same. And I think we saw that with the two main, like, you know, peoples in the, the movie, the Wakandans, the Talakans. And I'm wondering if y'all feel like, I mean, I feel like we do know, but how you feel like it shows up in our movements or in our space. For sure. Um... I mean, even just different strategies, the survival of their peoples are, you know, sort of the foremost concern. Um, and they have very different strategies for, for doing that. Um, and, you know, and I think even within our organization, we use a lot of different strategies. Um, you know, we say we use every available resource that we have because there is no one way to do this. Um, there can't be one way. There has to be many ways. Um, so, you know, we do, we pay bond. We do direct service work. We are doing advocacy. We're doing community building. We're doing organizing. 
um, you know, all of those things together are what move us forward. It was very hard to see these two worlds at, at odds with each other. It was really difficult. And I feel like the, like the whole movie, really watching like those two communities kind of in conflict was like this process of building trust that I feel like is really what like helps in our movement when there's these like different visions of what freedom and liberation is. I think especially in like the prim legal world or in the immigration world, you know, not everybody is abolitionist, but that doesn't mean that people are not doing good work or trying to do work. And I think that we can work with people with different like strategies, uh, maybe similar values, once we build that trust, you know, and not take that isolationist route, because then there's more of a like, I don't know you, like, you know, I feel like the Talukam were kind of like, you're working with the CIA, like, we don't know what's mm -hmm. good with you, like, mm -hmm. Wakanda was like, you're blowing up cars, I don't know what's good with you, <laughs> and like, it was like really them interacting, talking, learning each other's history, learning each other's values, that helped them build that trust, even like throughout the conflict until the end, when you kind of see that, like, okay, we can we can trust each other and we can come to like some type of agreement. And I feel like that is what really made me think of our movement and like building trust with like our partner orgs who might not be abolitionists or even people who aren't abolitionists but who like volunteer for Court Watch or mm -hmm. you know they participate in some of our other programming um, because like they trust us and we have been in community with one another. And so I feel like that the movie spoke to me in that way, in the sense of like how building trust can really help bridge that gap between like differences and what freedom might look like between different groups. Yeah, and the, the understanding of, of the fear and the anger that prevent people from, from building that trust. And, and I, think, I think we can all kind of identify with this desire to burn it all down <laughs> um, and that it's hard to resist leaning into that, I think. Um, but ultimately, I think remembering that that abolition isn't about destruction, it's about building. Um, and, you know, which, which I think people forget because abolish doesn't sound like build. <laughs> yeah, <true>. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, re but really, that's, that's what it is. Um, and, um, you know, I think, you know, there's just always going to be a kind of a, a natural tension between between those two things, um, between building and burning, and that, you know, you really saw, I think, the characters grappling with that through the whole movie. What did you all think about the role of anger in the movie? Necessary? I was really thinking about how, like, anger, like you said, was necessary and also, like, inevitable. Like, mm -hmm. and we saw so much anger. Like, we saw anger, of course, from Shuri grieving. We saw anger from the queen when she stripped Okoye of, like, her, of her title. We saw, saw anger from, like, you know, M'Baku. We saw anger from, like, a lot of different people. Even, like, Riri, the scientist at one point, was, like, <laughs> really angry. Like, you guys brought the beds here. And so I feel like there was this constant theme of how like anger is inevitable. And to your point, Ayana, like what can you make out of it? And it was really, really making me think of like Che Guevara's concept of revolutionary love and that like movements need to be, like anger is necessary, but typically the emotion of anger comes out of love mm -hmm. because you can't be angry about something unless you care. Mm -hmm. And how like love has to be what drives you or else the anger will consume you. Like 
And of course we're angry, like we're angry at the system, we're angry at the state, we're angry at all of these private actors, we're angry and just like the characters in the movie were angry. But in the end, it was like Shuri channeling her anger into this love for her mother's legacy or her people, like not wanting to just send her people off to like fight a senseless war. In the end, that made her kind of come to like, okay, this is not, we can form an alliance, this is not necessary. And I think that really stuck with me, like this idea that like anger is inevitable and we can learn to sit with anger, but it needs to be love that we like really, really lead with in our movements. And I feel like that is what in the end really helped Shuri like finally kind of take her role in Wakanda. I really liked um, the representation of like indigenous, the language being spoken on screen and even the name being different for what like uh, Namor's enemies call him versus like what his people call him. And yeah, I, I appreciated that whole um, storyline. I think there's, work to be done. I don't know necessarily how, but I know that it just represents one single part of like a community. Um, and it isn't, yeah, it doesn't necessarily translate to all communities in Latin America or even Central America or even Mexican um, culture, but I think it's a step to it. Um, it also felt like a representation of migration in mm -hmm. some ways. This imagery of people being pushed out of their land and put into unlivable circumstances and then having to find a new home. And in this case, it was underwater. And the like adaptation that that takes, you know, li literally learning to breathe, live, create. And we see that now with the influx of asylum seekers coming to New York, when we talk to and hear the experiences of our community members, I really saw that in this film. You know, I think, I think American culture in particular likes to celebrate resilience and grit as these like really incredible skills and qualities, which, which they are, but doesn't recognize the toll that that takes on on people um, and you know always having to adapt um, and and make concessions in order to survive is is really traumatic and um, you know I think I think it's something that um, you know Envision Freedom has has recognized you know we had in October, had this um, home and healing event for our community members and their families, um, you know, for people who have experienced immigration detention to come together in a healing space, you know, to do to do yoga, to do Zumba, to get connected to social services for physical health and mental health, and and how important that is in this work too is to give people some relief from having to constantly adapt. Thinking about our work and Wakanda, I'm just thinking about Wakanda as this kind of um, alternate reality, alternate history where exploitation, colonialism, and like divestment from communities doesn't happen. And it feels like so much of our work is about repairing that harm and like reinvesting in communities so that we're able to see 
the things like we see in Wakanda, when people are invested in and communities are invested in, there's so much imagination that can take place and creativity. I don't know, that feels like such a foundational aspect of the work that we do and just like abolition in general, being able to give the foundation for people to thrive. So Wakanda forever? <laughs> yes. Wakanda forever, but also Talacon forever. Because, yes. because, you know, we're not, we're never going to be a society like Wakanda that's untouched by, um, untouched by that oppression and colonialism. Um, you know, we're, we have a lot more in common with, mm. with Talacon and where, you know, where they started from and where they've grown from and what they've grown into. Um, so, you know, them forever too. <laughs> yes, now we're all doing this <laughs> for the listeners at home. There are many hands. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we didn't talk at all about Afro, the role of Afrofuturism, and I think that can heavily connect, or easily connect to all of them. Um, I have a close friend who is an Afrofuturist artist. He often says it's like Afrofuturism, creating a world that is so otherly and alternate because it is a freedom that we can't envision ourselves here. So I think that I think that really connects to abolitionist values and this idea of what you said, Abby, about repairing harm, which connects to transformative justice. And I think a lot about Ruth Wilson Gilmore when she's when she speaks on like having an abolition abolitionist like perspective is all about life being precious. And I feel focusing on this notion that life is precious, understanding that freedom is a constant struggle. Angela Davis said that, not me. Uh, and I feel like you can see all of those connections between abolitionist views, but as a baby abolitionist, I would like to hear what others have to say in the room. No, I think that's real. And I think that does speak to like what Julie and Abby were saying earlier about build, like the need to build. And I feel like Afrofuturism really like heavily like leans into that part of abolition. Like, let's say we, things are abolished tomorrow. Like, what are we building or what exists? Or like, yeah, life is precious. What are our central values? Like, that, that we are gonna be living off of. If we don't have to worry about like, what, what am I gonna eat tomorrow? Or like, can I scrape up enough money to send commissary to my loved one? Or can I put my home up to make bonds? Like, if people are not worrying about that. What could we be creating? What could we be doing? And it really makes me think of too, like even in the real world, the fact that Africa is home to like the majority of the world's natural resources, and that's the reason why it's been so heavily colonized and enslaved and destabilized. And what could Africans, what could Black people be doing if we had control, not even just Black people, what could the global South in general be doing if people had autonomy over their own natural resources? What technologies would we be coming up with that probably don't require like mass surveillance and like, incarceration through the internet um like that's what it really makes me think about like yeah if we did have access to all of the natural resources um in our own homes we could be creating a world where we get to be creative and we get to be generative to our community as opposed to extractive and i love that afrofuturism like really challenges that part because it's so easy to name what you want to tear down or what you want to abolish and it's a lot harder to envision a world that like literally does not exist or has not existed 
Yeah, and I think that's why seeing it on screen, seeing Wakanda on screen, it's so um, empowering because you get to see it. You get to envision what a world would look like when we do abolish all systems, um, which is, it's hard to, it's hard to see it because we're like so in the fight and seeing it on screen just kind of, you know, it, it, it does something else. It, it really does empower us to, to strive for that and to um, look forward to that future. Oh my God, that was so good. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having this conversation. Thanks for, Thank you for having, having us. us. <laughs> this was fun. <laughs> Thanks again for joining us. Dismantling Injustice is brought to you by Envision Freedom Fund, an organization that works to transform the immigration and criminal legal systems while meeting the critical needs of individuals impacted by these systems daily. To learn more about our work and donate, visit us at envisionfreedom.org. That's envisionfreedom.org. Dismantling Injustice was created by Sally Israel. Our executive producer is Abigail Wolf. This podcast is produced and engineered by Yasi Solutions and hosted by Carl Hammett Lipscomb. That's me. Special thanks to the team at Envision Freedom for being amazing. Until we're all free, peace out.